Theater here at Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. We're exploring another type of historical spookiness with Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. It came out in 2012, directed by Timur Bekmambatov, and it stars Benjamin Walker, Rufus Sewell, Dominic Cooper, Anthony Mackie, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Jimmy Simpson, Martin Sokas, and Aaron Wasson. First, a quick synopsis. It's the year 1818 in rural Indiana, and the young Abraham Lincoln is angry. His parents' employer, Mr. Bartz, is trying to sell Abraham's best friend, a free black boy named Will Johnson, into slavery. The young Lincoln intervenes, his father gets drawn into the fight, and the next moment, his parents are fired and Mr. Bartz is swearing revenge. He turns up a few nights later at the Lincoln cabin, where Abraham, sleeping in the loft, observes Mr. Bartz biting his mother. She falls into a mysterious stupor and soon dies. We flash forward to the fully orphaned 20-something Babraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Down girl, and he's played by the next Mr. Laura Skog, a.k.a. Benjamin Walker, who is getting absolutely hammered in a bar. He meets a shadowy stranger, Henry Sturgis, played by Dominic Cooper, before heading off to try to murder Mr. Bartz, who seems to have a quirky resistance to death and some highly specialized skills. The fight does not go well for Lincoln, who later wakes up in Sturgis's home. Sturgis initiates Lincoln into the world of vampire lore, then trains him as a vampire hunter who wields a silver-edged axe. Lincoln moves to Springfield, Illinois, where he meets the cast of characters who will people his adult life. Best friend and sometime employer Joshua Speed, played by Jimmy Simpson, future wife Mary Todd, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and future rival Stephen Douglas, played by Alan Tudyk. He's also reunited with Will Johnson, played by Anthony Mackie. But most importantly, he's still dispatching vampires at night and keeping it a secret from everyone. He finally defeats Mr. Bartz in an over-the-top horse stampede scene. Seriously, my notes from that scene say, this seems to be an extreme number of horses. And it's revealed that his pal Henry is actually a vampire himself, but unwillingly so. And he trained Abraham up in order to get revenge for the death of his own sweetheart. Abraham's victory over Bartz attracts the attention of Rufus Sewell, the effective king of U.S. vampires, and his sister Vidoma. They lure Lincoln to their New Orleans plantation and attempt to get rid of him. He escapes with Joshua and Will with help from Harriet Tubman, who has conveniently but ahistorically showed up in the bio. Lincoln comes to see how the institution of slavery is intimately bound up together with the scourge of vampirism. Metaphor alert! And he gets into politics to fight... both? We jump forward to the Civil War. Lincoln is in the White House, Joshua and Will are his chief advisors, and only these three know that the Union is fighting more than just living Confederates. It seems that Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, has made a secret pact with Rufus Sewell's vampire horde to enlist them in the fight. Meanwhile, Vidoma the vampire has made her way into the White House as a maid and uses her position to bite little Willie Lincoln. He dies, but not before an extremely distraught Mary Lincoln reveals that she's read her husband's journal and that she knows about the vampire world that he's been keeping secret. The Battle of Gettysburg arrives and the Union army is pretty well slaughtered on the first day by a battalion of vampires. A desperate Lincoln launches a last-minute plan to round up all the silver in Washington City and send it north to Gettysburg. Rufus Sewell's vampires attack the train, seemingly with help from a traitorous Joshua Speed. Surprise! This train is packed with ordinary rocks, and Joshua laid a false trail to get as many vampires as possible in one place. Many of them go down in the fight with Abraham Lincoln and co., and the rest die as the train plunges from a burning railroad bridge. Joshua is bitten and dies too. R.I.P. Joshua Speed. Lincoln, Will, and Henry all survive, and the next morning we see Mary Lincoln on the field at Gettysburg, unpacking crates of silver. 
The vampire Vidoma approaches, and Mary coolly shoots her, using a silver trinket of Willie's she'd been wearing around her neck. The movie appears to close, with Henry suggesting wistfully that he could make Abraham immortal, metaphor alert, and they could fight the forces of evil side by side forever. Abraham declines and goes out to meet Mary in the carriage on the fateful night of April 14th, 1865. The scene melts away to present day before cutting to Henry in a contemporary bar, wearing shades and getting ripped in a mirror of his first meeting with Abraham. So, first impressions. I'd heard of this movie for years, and it is no secret that I adore Benjamin Walker, and yet I never got around to watching it until the other week. I'm so glad we could rectify that for you. Yep. So literally the only thing I knew about this movie until last week was that Alan Tudyk was in it, playing Stephen A. Douglas, so naturally I assumed that he would be the vampire antagonist, so as to provide a reason for Lincoln to drive a stake through his heart. You feel what I'm laying down, Firefly fans of the world? Let's get down to the heart of the matter. One of the things that makes this movie fun is how it weaves events and individuals from Lincoln's life into the story. His rail-splitting and stovepipe hat make appearances, and even the fact that he commits many feats of ridiculous superhuman strength throughout the movie feels like a nod to the real Lincoln. One of the doctors who attended him on his deathbed noted that while his face was sunken and lined with worry and stress, he had the lean, muscular body of a much younger man. Abraham Lincoln, indeed. In any case, the movie tracks the known high and low points of his life pretty closely. His mother, Nancy Hanks, distant cousin of noted typewriter enthusiast Tom Hanks. What? Tom Hanks loves typewriters. No, I, mean, I didn't realize he's related to... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You're welcome. So she did, in fact, die in the fall of 1818, when Lincoln was just nine years old, though as far as we know, she died not of a vampire bite, but of either tuberculosis or milk fever, an illness acquired from drinking milk from an animal that has consumed certain poisonous plants. Is the antidote for it more cowbell? Oh. <laughs> Mary Lincoln's gonna haunt you. Nancy Lincoln. Nancy Lincoln. Sorry, now she's gonna haunt both of us. Fantastic. Spooky October. <laughs> anyway, Lincoln did go into business keeping a general store with Joshua Speed, who became his lifelong best friend and frequent sounding board, politically and otherwise. Speed even served a term of his own in the U.S. House of Representatives, but it's actually his brother James who came with Lincoln to Washington, serving as attorney general from 1864 on. The young Mary Todd was the Belle of Springfield and was, in fact, briefly courted by her future husband's future political rival, Stephen Douglas. And, of course, the Lincoln's middle son, Willie, died in 1862 of typhoid fever, probably from drinking tainted water at the White House. The person whose story makes the biggest diversion from fact is Will Johnson, who, as far as we know, didn't meet Lincoln until adulthood, when he was hired to serve as a valet. They didn't really exist on the terms of chummy equality that the movie suggests, nor did Johnson function as a political or military advisor, but the two men still shared some personal closeness. Johnson did follow Lincoln to the White House as a free valet working for wages. He was with him on the train home from delivering the Gettysburg Address when Lincoln began suffering the symptoms of smallpox. Johnson nursed him through the illness, contracted it himself, and died of its complications two months later in January of 1864. Lincoln paid off the Johnson family's mortgage and had William interred in the then-brand-new Arlington National Cemetery, where his grave can be seen today in Section 27 under a stone that identifies him simply as William Johnson, citizen. As for the rest of the story, I grew up half an hour from Gettysburg and have spent a lot of time there, and I'm reasonably confident that vampires were not involved in the battle. You don't know that. 
Fair point. <laughs> More to the point, there were no direct rail lines between Gettysburg and Washington at the time of the battle, only some extremely circuitous ones. And there's also definitely no giant gorge between the two towns, as depicted when they're crossing the railroad bridge, but those are geographic details that probably no one but me cares about. I first want to admit I made a rookie mistake by typing into the Google slavery and vampirism. Oh no. The first hits I got were definitely weird S&M bondage. R.I.P. your cookies. <laughs> anyway, the comparison between slave owners and vampirism is complicated. Some historians criticize the movie for how it approached this comparison. For example, Dr. Jackie Hogan of Bradley University wrote for the Christian Science Monitor, saying that the movie assigns the blame for extermination of native peoples and the rationale for slavery to non-human sources relieving real people of real responsibility. However, in terms of vampirism as a metaphor for slavery, one historian, Dr. Scott Poole at the College of Charleston, did some research and he found instances in which enslaved Africans believed their captors to be cannibals, as well as one occurrence in which Africans initially believed their new slave owners to be vampires or witches because of the red wine they drank. In an article for the Huffington Post, he notes that slavery did represent a kind of dark magic in which legal fictions transmogrified the bodies of human beings into property. The institution of slavery did become a kind of cannibalism, swallowing millions from the African continent, digesting them in the rice and cotton fields in the relentless pursuit of wealth that characterized the alleged Southern aristocrats. An article for Reason magazine also points out the symbolism of slavery and vampires, making comparisons to the way that black bodies have been abused, tortured, and violated by white people in power for centuries. From enslaved black people being victims to so-called scientific research in the South before the Civil War, to the Tuskegee experiment in the 20th century, in which black men received free medical treatment for supposed bad blood, but were deliberately not told they had syphilis, so doctors could research how the disease impacted people of different races. Beyond this, I can think of some other examples, such as the forced sterilization of thousands of black people at the hands of the eugenics board of North Carolina during the 20th century, to the cells taken from Henrietta Lack's body without her consent. Dang, how many hats feels awkward after all that. So, given all that, how many stovepipe hats are we awarding to this movie? That's got to be a solid four stovepipe hats for me. It has Benjamin Walker. QED. That would be enough for you, wouldn't Ex it? Exactly. In the podcast right now. Uh, it has Abraham Lincoln killing vampires, which is pretty cool. And gun canes and gun axes. And as a diehard fan of the TV show King of the Hill, I was really happy to see a live-action usage of that formidable weapon, pocket sand. Sha-sha-sha! I will knock off the point, though. Uh, partly because of the lag and momentum that occurs trying to link the first half of the movie to the second. And I do think there is some merit to the concern Dr. Hogan had about uh, attributing slavery to vampires and not widespread racism. But overall, it is a pretty fun romp through history. I really liked this movie as well. Definitely way more than I expected to. It is entertaining as heck with a lot of little historical winks to keep the nerds happy. Like you. I am, I am what I am. <laughs> Separate from the historical mistakes and half-truths and whole-cloth inventions, there are some glaring plot holes. I made a list. Mary yells at Abraham for not telling her the truth about his vampire hunting, and he just kind of goes with it. And I'm yelling at the screen that he told you and you laughed at him. So that's a problem. I also have no idea how they convinced the entire city of Washington to give up all their silver overnight without even asking questions. 
I feel like there are some holes with the vampire who got into the White House, killed Willie, and then just left, and they didn't seem to be too worried about the holes in their security, even though they still had two other living sons to protect. And honestly, that scene just bothered me in general. So I've officially talked myself down to three and a half stovepipe hats, but I still really enjoyed this movie. So finally, a few sundry other notes. Let's go through our actor count. We have a pretty good turnout this time. Supporting our early theory that he is distinctly overrepresented in the historical genre. Which I'm okay with. Yeah. Rufus Sewell is ringing in a solid three appearances on this podcast, having previously appeared in Amazing Grace and A Knight's Tale. He's playing a baddie for the second time, and a slaver, in noted contrast to his first appearance as Thomas Clarkson, the conscience of the Clapham sect. Also, Benjamin Walker was in Episode 6, In the Heart of the Sea, as Captain Pollard. I want to bring up that he also played the title role in the Broadway play Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and I got to see it back in 2010, and he looked mighty fine in skinny leather pants and eyeliner. Down, girl. Frankly, I want to see more of him playing U.S. presidents in emo clothing. Joseph Maul, who you may have seen as Uncle Benjamin from Game of Thrones, he plays Thomas Lincoln in this movie. He played Benjamin Lawrence in In the Heart of the Sea, and Alan Tudyk is back after A Knight's Tale. And pay attention to Mary Elizabeth Winstead here as well. We're pretty confident in saying she's going to come back. And not in, like, a vampire kind of way. We don't mean to slander you, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. If your lawyer is listening, don't call us. (laughs) (laughs) So I always like seeing how filmmakers treat scenes that include well-known landscapes. And Washington, D.C. gets a cool treatment here. We start the movie with a voiceover from Lincoln talking about history versus myth. As the modern D.C. landscape, CGI but artfully done, melts away to reveal the city's 1860s appearance. Notably, we see the present-day National Mall fill in with water, which included Tiber Creek along Constitution Avenue, the Washington City Canal, and the tidal flats of the Potomac River. We also get to see the U.S. Capitol, which was in the process of being expanded to its present-day size, and on which the dome wouldn't be completed until 1866. We also get to see the half-built Washington Monument, which was started in 1848, but halted in 1854 due to lack of funds. Construction on that didn't start again until the late 1870s. I do want to point out that when Lincoln leaves the White House for the last time at the end of the movie, the shot shows a green, pristine lawn with not another person in sight except for Mary. In fact, Washington was one massive camp and hospital for the entire war and would remain so for weeks afterwards. And soldiers would have drilled and slept even on the White House grounds, which is probably how the Lincoln boys came down with typhoid. Absolutely nothing to do with history, but I noticed that the dagger drop method that Henry uses in the flashback when his sweetheart gets killed and he's unwillingly transformed into a vampire, it's the exact same move that Arya Stark uses to kill the Night King in the last season of Game of Thrones. And my question is, did the producers Benioff and Weiss also watch the movie? I'm not the biggest vampire pop culture expert, but I did notice This is not the only story to tie vampires to New Orleans and the Civil War. Obviously, you have Anne Rice's New Orleans-centric vampire series, as well as Twilight, which features flashbacks to vampires duking it out on Civil War battlefields. I'm kind of embarrassed that you know that. Um, Anyway, uh, George R.R. Martin's 1982 book Fever Dream, or since it's spelled French-style, Dream, It's all about steamboats, vampires, and the antebellum South making parallels between vampires' views of superiority over humans to white supremacy. And as I may have mentioned, Benjamin Walker plays an emo Andrew Jackson in the Bloody Bloody musical. 
I thought it was interesting that the deep-seated guiding force in both of these characters' lives is the lasting impact that their parents' untimely deaths have on them. In this movie, it helps motivate Lincoln in his early training, and in the musical, it fuels Andrew Jackson's resentment against apparently everybody and everything, as referenced in the song, I'm Not the Guy, with the lyrics, My family's dead and I can't see a way to carry on. Life sucks, and my life sucks in particular. Also see the Hamilton musical and pretty much every Disney movie. (laughs) So appropriately for a film about Lincoln, there's some really great rhetoric in this movie. But also two scenes directly tied to rhetoric that fall under the umbrella of thingsthatdidn'thappen.com. The film shows Lincoln reading the Emancipation Proclamation to a joint session of Congress, which is something that literally only happened in the 1860s for the purpose of counting electoral votes, inaugurating the president, and memorializing Lincoln. The movie also shows rakeous applause for the Gettysburg Address, when in reality, Lincoln basically got crickets. The audience barely reacted, and a number of them thought the sub-three-minute speech was inappropriate for the occasion, and Lincoln himself thought he'd failed. Also, we have no actual photographs of him giving the address, because by the time the photographer got his equipment set up, Lincoln was done and sitting down. On the other hand, the noted orator Edward Everett, who spoke before Lincoln as the central attraction of the day, and who basically gave a complete history of the war, wrote to Lincoln afterward, I should be flattered to think I came as near to the central point of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. So snaps for you, Edward Everett. He was a good guy. Moving on to the costume part of Costume Drama Rewind. Uh, Last week for The Crucible, I talked about how the sleeves on 17th century women's clothing attached onto the bodice when putting them on with the shift showing from underneath. You can see this on Vidoma's leather bodice in the movie. Uh, She and Adam are supposed to be timeless monsters, and she's wearing vestiges of 17th century clothing. And based on the collar on the dress that Henry's sweetheart wears in that flashback scene, it looks like this occurred in the mid-1600s. Now, I was extremely skeptical that Abraham Lincoln would have worn a white suit to his wedding, as the costuming in that scene looked like something out of a cartoonish musical. But apparently he did actually own a few white suits in his lifetime. It's also worth noting that Mary Lincoln's white wedding gown was part of a trend started just a few decades earlier by Queen Victoria, who made quite the sensation when she married Prince Albert in a white dress, which was sort of a new thing at the time. Make sure to check out the book that this movie is based on uh, by Seth Graham Smith, who also authored Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which hopefully will come around for next year's spooky October. My list of Civil War book recommendations is long, annoyingly so, but I will post a few of our favorites in our show notes at costumedramarewind.com, so head over there when you're done listening. As a special Halloween treat, we're releasing one more spooky October episode on Halloween Day. And then she'll stop doing that voice, I promise. It has an actor who portrays possibly one of the most famous vampires of our age. But Robert Pattinson definitely is not sparkling in the 2019 film, The Lighthouse. And neither is anyone who watches it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind.